Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. This is Art Middlecoff, and uh, so I'm in Chicago today, and I wanted to catch up with Shannon Whiteside, who um, has a very interesting story. So, hello, Shannon. How are you doing? Hi, Art. So, you know, so you grew up here, and then you kind of started your career. Tell me a little bit about kind of what, how you got into teaching and, and how that started for you. Okay. I've always been interested in teaching as a child. I would make my brother be my student and my neighbors and stand in front of them with a chalkboard and teach them. So I've always been interested in being a teacher. But when I was thinking about my career, there are a lot of aspects of school that I was discontent about. So some of those things that always troubled me was this whole idea of long-term memory. Mm. So as a student, I would memorize something for a test, and then I would spit it out on the test, get an A, and then I pretty much would forget it. And I, so when I graduated, I was thinking, am I the only one here that doesn't really know anything? Oh. I kind of felt like a hypocrite. Like I have this A and on these grades and but I don't really know a lot. So was this in after high school or after college that you had um, these reflections? After high school. After high school. So that's really extraordinary. So it sounds like so when you were little and so when you were pretending to be teacher with your brother and with some of the neighborhood kids, how old were you when you started to when you were kind of playing at that game? I don't know, maybe elementary school, oh. but in my mind a teacher was just someone who basically told you what you were supposed to learn and I like to be a boss, so it worked out pretty well. <laughs> so, but it sounds like, um, so I mean, I know when I was a kid, I never pretended to be a teacher. So, so it sounds like you had, and I did like to be in charge. So, I'm, <laughs> but uh, so it, it sounds like, um, so it sounds like you, from an early age, there was something about teaching that kind of instinctively drew you. And yet, I think it's a surprising maturity that after high school, you would reflect on maybe a disconnect between getting good grades but not really having true learning. And and that was a disconnect that maybe even made you question whether teaching is something that you even wanted to be involved in professionally. So what, what right. happened next? So honestly, I felt like if I went into teaching, I would not be doing the best job I could do and that the kind of curriculum or content or approach would not be as good as it can be. So I just kind of waited and was looking into other options. And then I came across an article in World Magazine about this new school movement that was wow. hitting the nation. And so this was maybe in 1999. And they were talking about Douglas Wilson's book, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning. Wow. So here I was just kind of looking for an alternative model of education. And when I read that article, I thought, well, someone else is also looking for an alternative. Okay. They're trying to figure this whole education thing out, too. Okay. So it seemed pretty interesting. So I got a hold of the book, and I read it. And what really struck me was this whole idea of making sure kids really leave knowing something. Yeah. <laughs> it seems okay. so simple, but... It wasn't happening with me and with maybe others I knew. So I thought, oh, they really are trying to figure this out. So they 
So the method that, you know, he espoused in the book was Dorothy Sayers' trivium and the grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Yeah. And um, at the time, you know, I just read it and I thought, oh, this is what people used to do or did for centuries. It must be good. Uh, well, these kids will be remembering things. Yeah, so that's interesting. So it sounds like one of the tensions that had kept you away from teaching was this feeling that maybe teaching is a scam. Like uh, people just pass, pass their <laughs> tests, they get good grades, but they don't retain anything. It sounds like Douglas Wilson's book helped you with showing maybe that there's a perhaps an ancient or classical mode of education that people had used in the past that actually delivered results that you that you hadn't seen in your experience so i was just so excited yeah and here i was i feel like discovering in the library something that no one else knew yeah, about yeah yeah and i started talking to people and everyone else was kind of oblivious to this term classical christian education okay um and so on my own not through this my college, but I was able to go to a classical Christian school and sit in the classroom and absorb, you know, the methods and the teaching and learn a little bit about it. Okay, so your first exposure, so you read the book and then you were able to actually sit in some real classical Christian classrooms and get a sense of what teaching looked like in practice, and you got to absorb it, not just learning by reading, but by seeing it in action, and then did you get an opportunity to teach yourself at a certain point? Um, well, then I was I was applying for jobs, and okay. I um, chose one in a different state. And then they would send me to training. I think everyone that summer went to training and reading books. And, and then after you went through that training, did you feel kind of equipped at that point to go in and apply those that approach in the classroom? There still was a lot of... Um, I was still kind of unsure about some of the application in the classroom. The basic thing that I was told or that I believed and that everyone was talking about was, again, Dorothy Sayers' trivium. So because I was a grammar school teacher in the grammar stage, I was supposed to really focus on the facts of all the subjects. So most of my teaching centered around that. So we would do a lot of memorization of history timelines and grammar facts and Latin and maybe the presidents, the countries. It could basically be whatever we wanted. And at the time, there was a lot of publishers that would have songs that they were putting together so kids could memorize things and timelines. So we would just order things from those classical Christian publishers. And a teacher could be as creative as they wanted to in, in all that, in those areas. So, but the basic idea was to get the information in them and whatever that meant. So maybe we'd play review games. Maybe we would do a special project with it. But it really all came down to making sure they really learned it enough to do it on a test. So, um... So you said that that uh, there was the grammar stage, and do you, do you recall kind of what grades or what age range that would have applied to? I think the that was stage? usually like first through fifth or so. And then what would happen after that? And then the logic, um, the sixth, seventh, and eighth, maybe junior high, and then high school would be the rhetoric stage. But I just pretty much focused on what they were learning in that grade, and um, it was very teacher directed. 
because again my experience of schooling where I felt like I didn't remember a lot yeah. I thought well maybe if we really spend a lot of time on this rote memory and make it somewhat enjoyable I yeah. mean we weren't like beating it into them but you know singing it or doing it in a way that seems a little more enjoyable although it did get very monotonous and you can look at the kids a lot of times and they did not have joy on their face, and they were kind of just saying the same things over and over. You mentioned that um, that you came, that you had uh, sort of creative ways to be teaching these facts, like singing songs and things like that, and um, and how that was referred to as the the grammar stage of education. And you know, more recently, Kevin Clark and Ravi Jane in their book on uh, the liberal arts tradition, um, they kind of describe how that's done, where they talk about how schools, I'm quoting how schools in the Christian classical renewal have imagined themselves to be teaching grammar, one or more of the seven liberal arts, in very creative and effective ways, chanting U.S. states, grammatical rules, names of presidents. They have actually been engaged in the truly classical enterprise of musical education. So um, would you say, you know, some of these things like chanting the names of U.S. states, grammatical rules, names of presidents, were those some of the kinds of things that you would have covered, trying to make it more interesting, games, music, and things like that to help bring these facts and help internalize these facts in the kids? Is that right? Right. Yeah, that's what we would do. And we would even play um, games with it where it almost was like a, a big game show at the end and ask uh, maybe the end of the term or something. And then people would be eliminated if they didn't know an answer. Right. So that kind of uh, more artistic way, you know, maybe in, in Dorothy Sayers terminology, she might have referred to that as the grammar stage, but more contemporary you know, writers like, uh, like Clark and Jane and others would call that the, the musical stage of a classical education, but the name might be different, but the description sounds very similar. It's kind of children's games, but with a focus on absorbing these facts, whether it's geographical facts or, or uh, grammatical facts, language, names of history, and so on. So like when you would play these games and eliminate someone, was that about the ability to kind of who retained information? Is that right? Basically, it was. And a lot of times it pretty much was the same kids that would win. Okay. So that was a little disheartening. I see. I see. Because it kind of just, again, emphasized certain kids who had a strength in memory. And okay. again, they were applauded or rewarded. One of the things that had kind of drawn you to classical education was the hope that perhaps you had a way to get past this problem of, of learning to forget. And right. that maybe there was a way here that there could be more retention, longer term retention. And so did you suspect or hope that through the use of these games and songs and things like that, that you might get achieve a longer term retention than maybe you had seen in your own public school education? I did. I hope I did. I But in a lot of ways, it was kind of acting on faith. Okay. I started to see some holes in this okay. memorization method. Okay. Um, so what were some of the holes that you saw? Um, I would see that maybe in a certain context or if it's said a certain way, they might be remember it. Okay. But if it like was said a different way or on a test, so for example, if you're memorizing grammar rules. Okay. Well, but then when they go writing their, go, when they're writing um, their paper or their paragraphs, they're not using those grammar rules that they've memorized. The okay. sentence always begins with a capital letter, ends with a period. Well, they weren't doing that. Okay. In other areas, 
by memorizing some of these facts. It was just so much information that I just felt like when they are in the later stages to recall that. I don't even know where, like the retrieval skills you would need to kind of pick that out, especially when you're just memorizing it sentence by sentence and with no context. Yeah, yeah. And I also started to see and hear from other teachers that when they would get to maybe fifth grade or sixth, when they're supposed to make that transition, you know, they're so used to just basically repeating back what we said or what they or um, answering a question just um, straight from the text that they were afraid to really answer questions and really it was really hard for them almost to think on their own I see. because they were so used to being told the answer right. and they would just kind of regurgitate it that when they were told to think on their own or what do you think about this it was a little scary because they haven't had that chance I see another thing I started to see was a lot of it was based on children in the future what they're gonna do so you know, we fill them up now, so then they'll use it in the next stage. And then even in that next stage of where they're arguing and doing, they're kind of still preparing for that last stage when it all will culminate in this, you know, the rhetoric, the art of communication. But the problem was a lot of kids would not stay at the school that long. Okay. Because for various reasons, whether they moved or they couldn't afford it, or a lot of schools wanted or children wanted to go to bigger schools by high school. I see. They wanted the sports, they wanted the extracurricular activities, they wanted the social. So we're preparing them all these years for this last stage. And very few even made it to that last stage, if they could even make it, because it was a rigorous education and a lot of kids did struggle with it. Right. Because it was a lot of memorization, a lot of content, content and a lot of writing, so it just wasn't fit for every child. And I think some of them maybe were just even burned out already. I see. Okay. Because it's kind of like, this is heavy, and I'm ready for something else. So didn't so even with the songs and the games, that still led to a kind of burnout. I think so. As I would sometimes look at the kids' faces, and you know, as they got a little older, maybe you know, first and second grade, it was still a little exciting. But really, after that, I mean, how many times can you be repeating these things over and over? And that's what we did because we were afraid if we didn't, they would forget it. Yeah, I see. Okay. So you didn't want to go through all this effort and then they would forget it. And, um, you know, you would look at them and they'd kind of just be staring off or just saying it, but not really being there in mind. Yeah, yeah. When you were teaching, did you have kind of a model? Did you see your children as data machines with a storage and retrieval ability or did you see them as sponges or do you, do you recall kind of how you were taught to, to kind of view the children that you were teaching? I think maybe more of sponges okay. was maybe more the uh, metaphor I would kind yeah. of think about. Okay. At that young age, you know, they were told that they're just ready to absorb all these facts and, you know, they, they don't have a lot yet in their mind and and all this new information is exciting and they don't mind repeating things over and over. In a lot of ways, I kind of, you know, believe that because I thought that they couldn't handle more than that. I see. Okay. I thought, well, yeah, that's true for my guess what I know of kids. They seem to 
sing little nursery rhymes and little things like that or memorize commercials or so why not have them memorize something else and they didn't seem you know to be critical thinkers you know the kid I didn't I mean look I didn't have children at the time yeah okay so just thinking of little kids um, I thought you know we don't they're not ready to really be creative or think yet if they don't what do they have yet in their mind that they they don't have that output yet you have to put the input I think in a lot of ways I definitely underestimated their abilities okay for sure okay but it did seem to appeal to a certain child yeah and that was always a thing too I would look at some of the kids I can remember that at some point in the year their parents would say so-and-so is not gonna make it mm. and it's when I think back now I'm just so sad I'm like a mm. third grader you know had to be put in this position that he didn't feel you know good enough that he couldn't quite make it at our school and not that he had he didn't have a severe learning disability necessarily it was just the rigor of it and some of the um, the way we just push the kids what about was did nature was was nature part of it uh, being being outdoors maybe learning about um, kind of getting up up in close contact with nature or was uh, was the the visual arts or dance um, or music beyond songs were those or, or and and physical activity and sports how did those play in with your school experience? Um, nature was not part of it. Okay, I didn't really ever think about doing something like nature study at okay. the time okay. or was aware of it. Um, things like poetry. I remember thinking, oh, poetry, that seems like a good thing to do with kids, but I don't know if I have time for that. Okay. And that's really what I thought. There's a lot of things that I, looking back on, wanted to do because I thought there were probably good things like poetry and maybe, um, I wouldn't have called it picture study, but looking at art artists and looking at composers. But in my mind, I really thought those things aren't as important, and we don't have the time for that. And and so important was based on what criteria? So you had some kind of rule, some kind of maybe unconscious uh, parameter that your, your criteria that you were using to decide what's important and what's not important. Do you, can you put yourself back in your shoes of when you were teaching and how would you have decided, okay, this matters, like if you're running short of time and something had to fit in, what, what, was, the, what was the goal? What was the most important thing that you, would make you feel successful at the end of the day or feel like you were falling behind? <laughs> I think I had a heavy emphasis on things that were more intellectual. Okay. I, I, I just did. I didn't see... I didn't kind of understand the child as a whole and, and person and how they need every area is part of our development and what brings makes us human. I didn't understand that. I think I thought things that could be measured because that's what was going to, we need to be able to measure it on some kind of test so I can give some kind of grade so the parents can know we're learning. Do you think some parents were attracted to a classical education for their children because they thought that that was a way to ensure a higher academic standard, greater rigor, and greater intellectual preparation? Yeah, for sure. I think so. So the thought was, um, if the goal is academic excellence, performance in college, and so on, that the promise of a classical education was a better means to that end than other alternatives? 
I think so. I think a lot of people's impression of a lot of Christian schools were that they were not as rigorous and a little too easy. So this alternative to them was very appealing, that it was Christian, but we understood, you know, the importance of academics. Things that you could not measure. I wasn't sure if that would be a good use of time. Okay. Honestly, I thought, well, route nature, what are they going to gain from that? Okay, are they really, are they going to leave knowing something? I basically, sometimes as a teacher, at, the, at that point, the way I understood teaching and my responsibility as a teacher was whatever we just did, I need to make sure that there's something that they learn from it. So I remember even giving grades in Bible because hmm. I felt like I did. So I'd have to have tests about the content of the Bible. Um, so I felt like if we did anything like poetry, and if we did poetry at that time, how I would have thought of it was analyzing the poem. We couldn't just read for enjoyment. Okay. How could I waste people's time on things that weren't measurable? I, I, how, you know, I had to know they gained something from what I did. Okay. So it sounds, so then, um, so then how long had you been teaching when you had your first child? I was, I taught seven years before I had my first child. And so what changed when you actually had your own child? When I started thinking about what kind of education I wanted to give my children, I, some of those doubts I had, you know, would come to mind about the methods, right? The memorization. And I just, you know, would look at my child and think, is that what I want them to do all day? Is just to memorize these facts and just to be standing there with, you know, their eyes rolled and and just saying the same information over and over. Because when you look at your child and you just see all the wonder and all the things they're so interested in and everything's new and is exciting, and then when I think of saying, okay, here's some facts to memorize, it just seemed to be deadening. It just, it just didn't make sense to me. When for so many years, you know, when they're little, we're all about them exploring and being amazed about everything and then all of a sudden, we want to stop that and say, now I'm going to tell you what you need to know, and you need to spit it back. And there wouldn't be really much more room for them to discover in this kind of model. So it just made me kind of reevaluate and say, what else is out there? Because when I look at a child and I see all that in their, um, I felt like, that there's so much more that we could give them and that there's so much more they're capable of than just being handed over this set of knowledge that they need to acquire. When you had your first child, you know, did you think as much about that whole idea of measuring and being productive? Did that, did that, was that just as important to you as a mother as it was as a teacher? No, I think when I looked at my own child, I thought, what if they were the one that couldn't quite make it, couldn't quite memorize, couldn't quite, you know, the one who felt that they were less than. So, and what did that matter? You know, why does everything have to be so measured? And why can't kids grow at their own pace? Why 
is there all this competition? Um, why is everything evaluated? It just didn't all make sense to me. And I didn't really want to put them in an atmosphere that was like that. I really wanted them to love learning. And I thought, how can I help? How can they love learning? And the other thing was when you have grades, you're working for grades no matter what. I mean, kids might end up loving learning, but a, the amount of times I would hear, is that going to be on the test? You know, I mean, that's what kids would want to know. Is that going to be on the test? How much do we have to write for this? What do we have to do for that? It, it's really hard to cultivate a love of learning when everything is so measured. And I, I was just racking my brain thinking of ways that I can help them to just really want to learn about the world and not be so concerned about grades or how much work they need to do. And I really couldn't come up with any answers because in my mind, the only two forms of educational models I knew was the, the traditional teacher-directed model. This is what you learn. I will teach it to you. You will tell it back to me. Um, or on the other end of the spectrum was the more discovery model, um, pretty much maybe unschooling and, and maybe project-based or something that it's just more learner-centered. They can kind of learn what they want, and they're kind of free to roam around and just go at it. And I didn't like that idea either. So I was torn in what to do. And that's when I started, <laughs> I'm trying to remember, I'm sure I went to the internet and I, maybe I don't remember what I even looked up, you know, educational models or homeschooling. And Charlotte Mason came up and I'd heard her name once before in my 10 years of teaching. And it was mentioned in a very negative light before. Um, at a classical education conference, someone gave a presentation about Charlotte Mason being heretical, that her beliefs um, were not consistent with the Bible, specifically that she didn't believe in original sin. And so I went to that presentation. I didn't know who Charlotte Mason was, but I thought, wow, that woman is, is uh, you know, off the deep end. <laughs> I'm not going to really look into anything else she says, because if that's what she believes, then I, that's not what I believe, and I just moved on. And that was the only time I heard her name mentioned um, in classical Christian education circles. And I was in many, you know, circles and books and magazines, and I never heard her name mentioned except there. So then I came across her name again on the internet and I read about some things that um, her educational principles and I was just so intrigued. It was all those things that I was looking for, you know, that, that joy of learning, taking away the prizes and the grades and um, having curiosity be the motivator and just that broad curriculum and I was just like amazed. And I um, actually had the chance to sign up right away for the Charlotte Mason Institute Conference, which was then Child Life USA. And I 
went to the conference and you know I'm sitting there I didn't really know much but I remember hearing things like self-education and awakening and not you know filling up a child and living ideas and the personhood of the child and it was just so enlightening it was things I had never heard before it was just a radical change of the way I thought of the education model I've been taught and the education model I was teaching. It was totally different, totally new, totally amazing and life-changing. So here I am, what do I do next? Again, I felt like I was the only one that knew these things again, just the way I felt like I was the only one at the time that knew the classical Christian education. So I, um, at the time, Again, I started, you know, collecting books. I, of course, I read um, for the children's sake and, you know, couldn't get enough, got a hold of Mason's volumes. So, so when you actually had your own children, you know, did you, did you think of them, did they seem like sponges or did they seem different when you actually got to know your own child? They seemed different. They seemed smart, intellectual, curious at their level. They, they, the questions they asked, the things they, the connections they would make, the insight they would have. I'm like, these are not sponges. When you say that a child is a person, what does that mean to you? It means that they are fully complete in who they are. That they are not part of a person or aspiring to be a person, but who they are is complete. And... The way we look at them and should be the same way we look at adults in the sense of we don't need to talk down to them. We don't need to disrespect them or give them less. I mean, we shouldn't look at it like they're just children, so it doesn't matter what they're reading or what the book, the content, or, but they should be given the best that we have. And then they should be taken seriously in their thoughts and in their ideas. And that should, and we shouldn't have to fill their mind with our thoughts and our ideas. Because in a lot of ways, if we do that, we're missing out on who they are. Because every year, every day, they're growing. And if we don't get a chance to let them talk and um explain, you know, and narrate, and do have this process of self-education, we don't get a chance to see who they are and their personality coming through. Because in another, you know, education that's more teacher-directed, there's not a lot of personality coming through. There's not a lot of thoughts coming through. It's very much, this is what you should think about this topic. And we're happy when they can kind of tell it back the way we told it to them. But with Charlotte Mason education, we have a chance to see what they're thinking at that moment, at that age. And to me, that's just so exciting that I'm not putting my thoughts on them and my experience on them. I'm allowing them to grow at their pace and see how with each year, more and more is added to their knowledge and their understanding. And it's just such a neat way to appreciate children 
and the insight they can give. I don't need to hear more about what I think through them. I need to see what they're saying and what the Bible's revealing to them when they hear it, maybe of something for the first time. We'll never get that back. So I would not want to give them an education that takes away that chance to experience stories and music and art for the first time and see what they get out of it and to see their response. I mean, it's just such a beautiful thing that I've just been blessed to be able to do and see that in, their, in them every day. So you mentioned that uh, the one time you had heard about Charlotte Mason in, in classical education circles was a, was a, a, negative, um, a negative presentation that focused mainly on original sin. And um, there the notion is that, you know, that, that uh, I think the Proverbs talk about foolishness being bound up, you know, in the heart of a child and, and how um, with education, um, it's meant to be a process of, of kind of taking away that foolishness and, and forming something, you know, better. So, um, you know, is there, um, you know, when you talk about seeing what's in the heart of the child, um, do you feel any tension or, or any thought that, you know, that, that maybe um, your job is to, is to kind of fix what's bad in your child? I, you know, I can't change their heart. Only the Holy Spirit can. So I need to, the only thing I can do, right, we, I, we need to approach it in ways we're exposing them to living ideas that, that they can process those things. And through their knowledge of God, they can come to know him and, and live according to his ways. So I can't make them be anything anyways. So it's kind of futile. Um, I think a lot of times in Christian education, we think the more information we give them, the more they will um, follow the Lord. So we need to tell them exactly what to think about this passage, what to think about this historical event, what to think about this Shakespeare play, and make sure, you know, they're not getting all mixed up on who's good and who's bad. And we give them all this information. And I think it backfires because they've never had a chance to digest it themselves. They've never had a chance to wrestle with those things and those ideas and they've been always told what to think. And in a lot of ways, they're just kind of tired of hearing adults telling them what to think. And um, so I think that sometimes when they get out on their own, they might just kind of, I'm done with this. I've been told what to think. It's been narrow. It's been so black and white that, you know, I'm just, I'm done with it. And I think when, th when, things are presented in a more open way through ideas and understanding that everything's not black and white um, and letting them process that. I think when they're older, they're not going to see it as so dogmatic, Christianity. But I think they'll see a lot more of the beauty in it. And they'll see that they've been exposed to so many ideas in so many areas through a Charlotte Mason education that I don't even know where you'd run to to get away from, to say, well, you never taught us about this or this or that. I mean, be hard pressed to find an area that we didn't cover. 
that we didn't at least, you know, open the door to and say, these are all God's ideas and these are all ready for you to have this relationship with all this knowledge and it's all wonderful and it's all life-giving and we didn't just focus on these few things but everything here is is part of his world and I just think it's so beautiful that those things that you can't measure are such a part of her curriculum because that's really to me what those areas are the areas that really help make us um, human. I mean, the nature and the music and the poetry and all that is so essential because I think a lot of kids, they just don't know what to do with themselves or even with their time because they haven't been exposed to all these things and they don't have these relationships with all this knowledge that's out there and all these connections that they can have. They don't know what the world has to offer. And I think um, it's so full that I really feel like it, it will just, young people, you know, when they get out of high school and if they've been learning this way, that they will feel like their life is so full, that they just have so much to explore and that God has given them so many things that to me it'd be really hard pressed for them to not see God in, in this beautiful, wonderful way that's way bigger than just maybe the narrow focus that um, sometimes he's presented as. So did you find that with Charlotte Mason you got the practical guidance that you needed to know how to actually do the things that you wanted to see happen in your school? I did. It took a while to kind of understand you know, how to implement it and, and how is this different and and is this really effective or, or, you know, it was just so different. But she did. She took these principles and she made it practical and she made it different. And through, you know, narration, um, it allows the children to be self-educated and allows them to process information and have it become knowledge and have it assimilate and it's have them have the chance to uh, be original I mean I love to see my kids and, and what you don't again you don't know what they're gonna say I love that that it's not I know they're gonna answer the question that I asked them this way no I mean I don't know exactly how they're gonna word the narration or how they're gonna you know what they're gonna say after as they reflect on it. Um, my kids are into music. They will sing their narrations. They will act them out. They will um, draw them, it, you know, and they feel the freedom to do that. And I think that's just so neat that it's bringing out this creativity in them. And, and they just, and they understand it's not something that they're doing for me so I can look for a right answer and make sure they have all the points. They understand they're doing it for themselves because they'll stop. Wait, I need to narrate now because I am ready. Like they'll, they'll know when to stop and say it. They know it's for them. They know that they can come to something and they can understand it without a middleman, which again, I never really knew you could do that. Right? You always think you have to have a teacher explaining everything to you. 
and but they don't think that. I mean, the way they think about knowledge and learning is so different than the way I think I thought about it, because that's the atmosphere they've been raised in, and I think that's sometimes the I think that's also what um, sometimes is not talked about is. I want them to know think knowledge is not is something that is not this body of knowledge that you know I can check off a list and I know it. I want them to think it's the, the science of relations. I'm learning about this. I'm building relationship with this um, this person, this composer, and that's how we talk about it. You know, are we going to read about like learn about Handel? Are we going to, something, you know, Shakespeare. We talk about it like they're kind of people that we see. <laughs> you know, we don't talk about it as subjects. That is, when we think about, when they think about these people, all these, like, dates and um, data points don't come to mind. They, they think about their music, their stories, who they were, the things they did. We, like, almost like friends. And I just love that that's their understanding of knowledge. Their understanding of teaching is not the teacher tells them what to think. Their understanding of learning is that they're, they need to be self-educated, that they have to do the work. I'm not going to tell them. So it sounds like when before teaching, you, you were kind of wondering why you didn't retain the information you learned in school. And then you thought that maybe through classical education, you might have the secret or the answer. But now... It seems that you've discovered that retention of facts and knowledge isn't really what education is about, but it's about having relationships with people and things and music and wonderful things that are in history and in the universe, right? Right. I, I came to a different understanding of what knowledge is. But the neat thing about it is through the narration and through this process, they are learning tons of facts. Yeah. And they can tell you things. It's not like they just have these ideas in their head. They have a good understanding of history, timelines, or different people and when they lived and events and all these things. They have a great understanding that was organically, you know, learned organically and naturally and in a way where it was, um, the story was revealed. And it wasn't done in an artificial way. They might not remember everything, obviously, they were told, but it is amazing what they remember, as we can see when, with the exams. I mean, that's just such a radical idea that Charlotte Mason had to read something, narrate it, and then, of course, it's coming up in, in various ways, but then to have exams where you don't study? I never heard of that before. And then they and then the exams are enjoyable for I mean for most children for mine they are because it's not pressure again it's not looking at judging them for what they don't know but it's seeing what they know and they're excited to see what they remember and what they've learned and putting it all together and seeing all those pages of the answers that they have. It's just such a neat process that every step of the way is respectful of the child. And it's so consistent with that. And it'd be hard-pressed to find, you know, something that she does that doesn't make sense with the principles. I think Charlotte Mason method is for students of all levels. 
because you're not judging them against others. Um, I think the freedom is there. And, and even when kids know the freedom's there, I think it allows them to not be so stressed about it and to shine more. When they know you're not have you're not going to critique everything they're going to say or when there's room for not saying everything and there's room to make mistakes and I, it just it just allows them to be who they are and it allows them space to grow and so when they're and they I think they realize after exams that's why it's really good the areas that they maybe could have paid more attention in or the books that maybe they didn't pay as much attention in or not pay attention but maybe it was a little hard so my daughter would say you know I think you need to read that book with me next time and I think that's just so neat as a 11 year old girl that she's already processing her learning and what she needs to grow um, as opposed to me making all the decisions and telling her what she needs or where she faltered. So I think it gives room to kids of all levels and there's so many parts to it. The exam, they're drawing, they're doing music. It's not just all this heavy um, work in one area. So I think they can feel good about it and, and also look at the areas that they need to grow and hopefully figure that out as well. So what would you say to somebody who, who might hear this, hear what you're describing and say, you know, what you're describing really is actually the, the ancient, you know, the original vision for classical education from, you know, from Plato and Aristotle on down through the Middle Ages, that what you're describing is really what classical education is about? Um, this kind of experience that you've had with your children with Charlotte Mason. How, how would you respond to somebody who, who, who said that, to, who might say that to you? I know there's a lot of different definitions of classical education. Um, I know a lot of people have distanced themselves from Dorothy Sayers, Lost Tools of Learning, but there's a lot of people that have not. The Association of Classical Christian Schools still uses her definition of the trivium, and the stages, and, and there are, I can't remember, hundreds of schools that, and growing that follow her model, um, as well as we talk about the classical conversations uses that model. Again, when it comes to the people in the trenches, you know, the teachers, the moms, they're still using that a model that is the stages of development. The model that I knew the model of all the schools that are part of associate Christian classical schools and classical conversations is using a very, very different model than anything Charlotte Mason would um, propose. What would you say to a, a parent who um, was interested in classical education um, but was concerned about some of the things that, you're just, that you've described for us today? and wanted to find a way to blend the two, uh, what, what advice would you give to someone in that situation? I'm still confused why people would want to blend the two. I understand people have different goals for their children, and there I can see some people would like the classical model that has a focus on Latin 
and the ancient languages and the literature and history of the Greeks and Romans and a curriculum that many you know, famous people um, learn from. And so if that's what they want, I, I go ahead and do it. But I don't understand really what that has to do with Charlotte Mason. Um, I don't see her methods as lining up her philosophy with the classical. Of course, she knew about classical educators and people um, and acknowledged some truths that they had, just like I would acknowledge many things other, um, you know, an unbeliever would say about learning. I mean, that's, I can, a lot of my things I read in my education, you know, might be from an unbeliever, and I would say, yeah, that I agree with that. And even I think some of that is better insight than some of the Christian stuff I've read. But it, but it doesn't mean that she was classical and that her model was just implementing a classical way of learning. I don't know, no, I don't know how I could come from a classical background and then read Charlotte Mason and feel like I had a total awakening, that I was hearing things I never heard. I was making connections I never heard. I was seeing things that were so radical and different that I don't know how, where, where was I? Did I miss it all those years? I was searching. I was searching for answers for what to do in, in understanding this philosophy or in ed education philosophies. And I never saw anything, anything close to Charlotte Mason's ideas. This idea of the art of standing aside as a teacher that never would have been. That's not the classical model, at least to be, to let, um, it's very teacher-directed and, and driven by the teacher. Char that's, not, that's not Charlotte Mason's model. I mean, to me, that's totally opposite. Charlotte Mason is not just throwing in nature study and maybe narrating sometimes and reading some good books. I mean, it's a whole paradigm shift of everything you're doing. Are you viewing the child as a self-learner who is able to, to go at, you know, to, to be, are you allowing them access to the books and things without being this go-between? And I don't, I mean, that, that, are you letting them do the work on their own? And are you giving them a full curriculum in all these areas where all these things are important? all the, the, you know, the science of relations, that everything is part of a child's heritage or part of their, you know, should access to all areas of knowledge. To me, a classical curriculum is very narrow. It's supposed to be narrow. That's the point of it. The point of it is Latin and Greek and focusing on that. And that's what they did. So if you're going to start throwing in all these other things, I, I'm just then it's not a classical education anymore. I don't really know why we need to put them both together as the same thing. I think it's confusing to people because, again, I think most moms want to know on Monday morning, what am I doing with my child? And I think being consistent in your philosophy and methods is the most helpful thing you can do. I know people like to be eclectic, but I think 
being eclectic is confusing, confusing to children because they don't really know what you're expecting from them. So if you're giving them a model where one day you're having them narrate and you're not, you're just kind of standing aside and allowing them to do this, to do it on their own and, and then the next day you're give, teaching them a lesson about something and telling them what they need to know about it. I mean, that's inconsistent. They're not going to be growing and, and understanding in the way they could when it's consistent. I think a big thing is this habit of attention which is not talked about. I did not hear about that in classical education. The fact that you read something once and then you narrate it and, you, and that's it. That is huge. I never heard that in anywhere. <laughs> I mean, most of the time the point is to keep rereading it and to underline and take notes and read it again, or especially with this whole idea of memorization. You're getting that information over and over again. I mean, it's not, all, it's not about learning something once and building up that habit of attention. And again, that can't be built if you're going back and forth between different methods. And I think some people might try Charlotte Mason and say, well, it's not working. My kids don't have a lot to say when they narrate um, or they're not liking it. I don't know, whatever the things are. I think it's because if you're not doing it consistently and purely, that, that, that I think then you're not allowing it to be the best it can be. So when, when kids narrate, they get better at it. And then they kind of, you can't just do it haphazard or it's not really going to be, it's not, you're not going to see the results you want to see. So I, so I think we're doing kids a disservice when we mix many methods. It's not giving them a chance to really understand what knowledge is according to you, the role of the teacher, the role of them as students. And then these methods need, to, they take time. And I think we need to give them that time to really become comfortable with it. So we, when we when we kind of think back to you know your your history, you know you were kind of playing as teacher from from the earliest ages, and you've had quite a journey with education and teaching in a classical school, and then discovering Charlotte Mason, using Charlotte Mason with your own children. So where is that journey taking you now? So where what are you doing? Besides teaching your children using the Charlotte Mason education, how is your kind of hunger to learn about teaching, you know, what, where does that brought you to at this stage in your life? What, what are some of the projects that you have working, that you have going on right now? I'm also working on a PhD in curriculum instruction, and my dissertation focus is actually on narration. And I'm hoping to analyze, I have about 60 different narrate narrations oral narrations that I have and I'm it's still kind of open what my data and it's just is collected and I'm still trying to process what I'm going to do with it but I'm just excited about the opportunity to have the chance to present ideas about Charlotte Mason at a secular university and I don't know where that will lead me but I think there's a lot of pre-service teachers that don't know who Charlotte Mason is. And I would love to have the chance to teach at the college level 
and expose people to her to her theories as well as other educational theories and just ask some of these questions about knowledge, about the role of the teacher, about the learner, just to expose them to those things and just start asking those questions, things that I really didn't think about and only thought about in one way. I want to open their mind that there's other possibilities out there to look at these subjects. So that's great to know that your interest in Charlotte Mason has brought you kind of all the way into almost a kind of a career focus again where you're going and doing research now and studying and, and promoting Charlotte Mason's ideas in places that many people would not have any other way to hear about her and, and her ideas about education. So that's very inspiring and very encouraging. And um, I think that your, your story probably has given a lot of people a lot to think about in terms of what they want for their children and uh, what model of education they want to use and uh, uh, maybe thinking about some of the important differences between different approaches that can be used for teaching. So I wanted to thank you for taking the time to share with us and to kind of open us, uh, open up to us, you know, your story and your experience. I think many people will be thankful to have heard it. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. My heart in all this is not to be divisive or to be nitpicky about definitions. I just, I truly want people to understand what is out there. So as a homeschool mom, you know, maybe a young homeschool mom out there who's looking on the internet and trying to figure this out and looking at their child and saying, what am I going to do? You know, this precious life here that seems so eager to learn. You know, how can I continue that love of learning? I want to just make sure that they can understand the different roads out there that and really truly understand what Charlotte Mason stands for and what she believed and her ideas and how they are just so radical in a lot of ways um, in so many ways and I just want people to know who are looking for something different than they had something that just turns everything upside down in a lot of ways. And um, I want them to truly know that her methods are different and unique because I'm afraid if everything gets combined, someone might just look up classical education and say, okay, this is what classical education is, and Charlotte Mason is part of that, and just kind of assume she's just the name under that. And then they might never then pick up her book and have that awakening that I had that has changed my life as a person, not just as a mother, not as a homeschooler, but as a person. And that I think is what's so amazing about her. Because if you're educating in a way that has not changed you, then I think you need to question your philosophy of education. Because it, if it's made for persons, right, and we all are learning and we're all at different levels, but her methods have truly changed me. The things I'm interested in, I was never interested in before. You know, I mean, I'm interested in learning about nature and having a nature notebook. I'm interested in different um, music and art that I was not interested in. And just finding joy in all these areas that I never did before, even when I was a teacher. And there's just something unique and special about her philosophy and I don't want people to miss that out 
miss out on that and think that she's just like everyone else and she just has maybe a little twist on it if you throw in some nature study because it's truly a different paradigm shift. And if people are happy with classical education, that's great. And I think, you know, there's a place for that. But to mix the two together, to me, really perhaps shuts the door on this opportunity that people can have to truly discover who she is and, and how that might affect their life. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry audio blog. We hope you enjoyed the program.